Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, hello, and thanks again for joining us here at episode 70, where we're talking about upgrading your level of service, whether you're facing external customers or internal customers with your coworkers. Uh, this guest, Rebecca Morgan, is going to help make that happen at a higher level. So you're going to learn, one, overlook tactics to better serve your customers, two, the step-by-step sequence for calming upset customers, and three, how to deal with workplace conflict. So if you want to check out the show notes, the transcript, the links to things, things mentioned, you'll find that over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep70. Or if you'd like to get those takeaways just faster in an email you can read in the morning in under two minutes, sign up for the Gold Nugget email list over at awesomeatyourjob.com and you'll have that hooking you up. Here's the story about Rebecca. Rebecca Morgan, CSP, CMC, is an international speaker, trainer, and consultant specializing in creating innovative solutions for workplace effectiveness challenges. She's appeared on 60 Minutes, Oprah, The Wall Street Journal, National Public Radio, and USA Today, as well as international media. Rebecca is the best-selling author of 26 books, including Calming Upset Customers, Grow Your Key Talent, Remarkable Customer Service, and disservice. And her just released book, Extraordinary Leadership Lessons from Everyday People. She partners with clients to accomplish high ROI on their key talent development projects. Since 1980, she's transformed executives, managers, salespeople, and customer support staff into much more effective workplace contributors. Here's Rebecca. Rebecca, thanks so much for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Well, thanks for asking me, Pete. It's, it's a pleasure. Now, I am so intrigued by some of the things you have up on your site and such, particularly your emphasis on measurable results when it comes to your solutions. I love measurable results. I'm big on ROI and I share some of that with my training clients and, and it's big and it should be in terms of making it valuable. So could you tell me a couple of stories? You've got some ROIs of like 2000% for creative solutions. What are you doing over there? Yeah, we like to have ROI whenever possible, and that's not always possible to measure the specific ROI. At least we can usually get some measures. Whether we can actually translate that into dollars is another another thing. So one of the groups we worked with was our local international airport, and I did a whole customer service Revamp from them. It took a year or so, and we started with um, customer surveys that I designed, and then secret shoppers, and then designed a training program around that, and deployed it to all the concessionaires, the retail and and food and beverage shops, and we measured before, we measured three months after, and then we kept measuring for a year, and we got it was something like nine. 15% increase in revenue mm-hmm. from that, which they were thrilled about. And the 2,000% ROI was from a different project around our productivity programs, and that was self-reported. So I'm always a little skeptical when it's self-reported uh, versus the 19% we got 
you know, actual figures from the airport. So the 2000% ROI was we asked people beforehand how much time they felt they spent wasted doing nonproductive work at work. And then we compared it eight weeks later when we followed up with them and we asked them to tell us what their wage was so we could divide that, you know, into an hourly wage and figured out that including their cost of their time to come to the session, my costs, then it had a 2000% ROI because they turned much of that wasted time into highly productive time focusing on high value tasks. So those are some of the ways we get some sort of measure on ROI. We're always looking for whether it's just a performance improvement, how can we measure the performance improvement, and not just have it be subjective, if at all possible. Oh, I love that. And with my Enhanced Thinking and Collaboration program, we do a similar kind of measurement style with the magic question is, over the last three weeks, how many hours did you spend doing analyses that proved unnecessary or redundant to reaching your objectives, as well as how many hours did you spend in meetings in which your presence was was not really essential. And so if you look at the before and the after, there's a nice drop in those hours times their, their compensation, and boom, it's like epic return on investment, which is cool because, you know, training really does have the power to just make everything massively better. I'm a believer, in, and that's why we're doing what we're doing, right? But did you also factor in your fees and the cost of them to attend the program? When oh, you absolutely. Came up with that number? Okay. Well, some people forget those. Uh, some people don't include those. So that's why I'm asking. <laughs> oh, yeah. Time, a friend of mine, or a colleague that I saw at a conference the other day had just written a book about ROI and training. And I was asking him some of these questions and he had not factored in some of these things. I'm saying, no, that's not really ROI. It's, it's what you're talking about is measurable, but putting a dollar amount on it, you can't really do that based on the things that he was, he was talking about. Oh yeah. No, I was sickler for the data. There's an extensive spreadsheet that includes the cost of the training as well as the time cost of, Mm -hmm. of engaging in the training. And you might get a kick out of this. We use the Thompson Taw technique to determine outlier data points in order to arrive at the average compared difference in means. So, okay, tell us then on to, on to business here. So you have a towering amount of expertise when it comes to talking about customer service in terms of books and programs. And so... I would love to hear your kind of philosophy when it comes to, to customer service, both kind of internal customers and with your sort of fellow teammates and collaborators, as well as external customers in terms of, first of all, how should we think about customer service and, and get us oriented to what's great service versus kind of mediocre service? Well, interesting you, you mentioned that. So one of my 26 books is called A Remarkable Customer Service and Disservice. And it's examples of both of those sides of people who just went above and beyond and then people who couldn't even do the basics and lessons learned from each of those that anybody can apply to their efforts. And I know a lot of our listeners are internal people. So obviously they have someone they serve beyond their boss. So they have someone who 
who supports the external customer, whether that's uh, them themselves or their team, or, you know, even if they're in accounting, they have somebody that they serve that vendor provides, if they're in accounts payable, provides something that allows them to get the product out the door and serve the customer. So it's really beginning with an orientation of that mental state of I am in customer service no matter what my job function is, and then identifying who are your customers and what could you do to better serve them. And one of the things I work with my clients on is helping them get that the answers to that last question from the customers themselves. A lot of people I work with say, well, we're going to do this, this, and this for the customer, and the customer doesn't really care about right. that. And they spend all this time and energy trying to create something for the customer that really, if they just did their what they're supposed to do quicker, better, more accurately, the customer would be thrilled rather than having problems with just some of the basics. So going to the customer and saying, what is it that you want? How can we be better to serve you? And frankly, a lot of them will say exactly what I just said. We don't need anything extra. Just please find a way to improve your processes to get us what we need better and faster. Oh, I like that a lot. The extras. And that reminds me of, I'm thinking about airlines right now because I'm currently in Portland, Oregon, and I flew Spirit Airlines out here, (laughs) which has all kinds of customer service people furious at them from time to time. It worked out okay. But I think that, you know, sometimes it seems like a, a service, you know, like an airline or someone, you know, they're adding some fancy stuff in terms of maybe it's food, beverage, hot towel, whatever. But at the end of the day, what, what most of us really want is to to get from point A to point B at a relatively, you know, good price with a minimum of, of delays and headaches and inconveniences and, and discomforts. Indeed. It's it's funny you mentioned the airlines. So uh, many years ago, I was on 60 Minutes. Steve Croft was doing a program about customer service in the airline industry, and they found me. And so I was the expert on the piece. And they were disgruntled with all the misinformation that the airlines give or the information the airlines have, but they don't share with the customers which then makes the customers more disgruntled. So at the time, I don't know if it's true that it's still that one out of four flights was delayed or canceled. So for me, coming from Silicon Valley to go to the East Coast, I would most likely have two flights each way. So for every trip, the likelihood of me having a delay or cancel was pretty good. I'd have one out of four, right? Mm-hmm. So the airlines know that a plane has a mechanical or there's, uh, you know, it's going to be late, but they don't disclose that. And so then you're scampering for a replacement flight when if they had just told you that from the get-go, you could have made that other carrier's departure, but now you're stuck for hours because they didn't tell you what they want. So that's part of the basic service that I think we need to keep in mind is what are, you know, what are we communicating? How are we communicating it? And importantly, when are you communicating it so that the customer has some other options and helping them explore those options and find a different solution than waiting to the last minute or not telling them at all. That's one of my pet peeves is they don't tell you at all until Mm -hmm. a week or two later and you haven't received what you ordered and you have to call them. 
It's like, oh, yeah, sorry about that. <laughs> yeah, it's like you knew. Why didn't you call? So in the book, one of my 26 books is called Calming Upset Customers. So how to calm down upset people. And the prevention piece is something that all of us would say is duh, but frankly just doesn't happen as regularly as I think we all would like. Right. So those are some great kind of principles and and practices. Could you maybe bring those to life a little bit in terms of some key examples, maybe in terms of some of the clients that you've worked with in terms of, oh, they saw we had a bad situation in one way, and then we offered some suggestions, some interventions, and then there was an improved kind of after state just to make it seem all the more real. Well, sure. I mean, I can tell you both from the consumer side as well as the consulting side. And and let me just start with the consumer side. So yesterday I'm in a major home goods store whose credit card processor went out. So they said, come back and a little, you know, go ahead, do an errand, come back. So I did that, did that again. And it still wasn't working. And they had to write everybody's order down by hand and take the credit card information so they could process it at a later time. So first I'm thinking, really? You don't have an SOP for what to happen when, say, the electricity goes Mm. out? I'm sure every store in the country has that. Isn't that something that you would be able to figure out pretty quickly rather than figuring it out on the fly? So they had no guidance on how to do it. It was a nightmare. And after spending half an hour in the store, the manager I was working with told one of the other clerks, go open up some of the Ghirardelli chocolate bags and pass those out to the people who've been waiting. So I applauded him for his effort. Granted, it was a little, you know, too little too late, but that he at least was helping the customers a little bit in line. Now, I thought it would have been even nicer if he gave us all a discount coupon or something for our efforts. But those are the kind of things I look for with a client is saying, okay, what are some of the breakdowns that can happen? And what are your processes for when they do? So I've been in the store where I've had a question about something and the manager isn't available and the clerk just looks at me. Sorry, the manager isn't available. Okay, then is there an assistant manager? Is there a district manager? Could we text or call the manager? You know, I'm having to come up with these options for them. That should Mm -hmm. be de rigueur, that Frankly, asking for a manager is not that common in a store and having them on lunch break, you got to have a plan B. So I try to be strategic in my approach with customer service professionals and not just look at the tactics, which is what we're talking about, but looking at what are the strategies that will help them stand out among their competitors. Now, as an employee, you say, well, I'm just in my in my team, in my department. I don't really have competitors, but you individually have potential competitors that if if you're not doing your job beyond average, if you're not making the effort to make sure that the people around you are thrilled as punch to work with you, then if a reduce, reduction in force happens or if there's a need to let people go, they're going to look at the exemplars And how you treat other people in other departments as well as your own is part of being an exemplar. 
how can I look at the people that I serve and work with as my customers and what can I do to make their jobs easier if it's something that is within my capacity and doesn't take on much extra work but can make their life easy, then I'm going to be noted as someone that is indispensable in the department. Mm, That's good. And and so do you have some additional examples for how that comes to life? It's really just being aware, I think, and having the attitude of, I want to make your life easy. How can I, what can I do that would streamline my process? And it's just a shift in thinking. I had a client in Singapore once say, do you teach people how to think? (laughs) And I thought, well, in a way I do in that I help them see other approaches that they might not have thought of. That's good. And so when you talk about the, the attitude, you know, how could I make life easy for this person? Could you maybe just share a few commonly occurring, perhaps examples, practices, tactics in terms of like when someone asks for this, anticipate what they really want and then ask a follow-up or, you know, what are some little tactical how-tos or or best practices when it comes to doing that attitude of making someone else's life easier? Well, I think you hit the nail on the head of the anticipation. So I can't tell you the number of times somebody has approached me with a question. So, you know, we sell books, so they'll call and say, well, I'd like to order a book. Okay, great. Who would you like it autographed to? Well, my husband or my boss. Okay, great. Happy to do that. Is there some special occasion that this makes, you know, you want to make sure this arrives by then? Or can I add a special note in the signatory, you know, happy 60th birthday or something to make it special? So I'm anticipating since they're ordering it for someone else, that it might be for some special occasion. So we all have that where you could just give a perfunctory, sure, I'll send you a book and my example, using this example, but just going that little step beyond. So somebody asks you for something that's within your parameters of your job, but then to follow up with, what's your time frame on then? When do you need it by? that's not that common a question as you would think it would be. I just worked with a large real estate firm in the last few weeks and we were discussing that particular point and they go, oh, I never ask when they need it. Duh, I should be asking them when I need it so then they need it so I can triage my priorities and make sure that I'm managing my time in a way that delivers to them what they need on or before when they need it. So you'd think it would be a simple question, but these were sophisticated real estate professionals who hadn't thought of asking that question. And so I think that's so powerful in terms of just clarifying some of those pieces. And I've got a, I've got a module all about just those clarifying questions. Make sure you're on target with regard to the deliverable, the timing, the resources, the audience, the motive, the process to have it to flow. And then sometimes just getting that extra dose of clarity or detail up front enables you to surprise and delight and and add all kinds of on-target goodness that you didn't even know might be helpful going in. Yep. And sometimes they will not have thought it through. Mm -hmm. And by the time you get through asking those questions, they may say, you know what? I realized there's a different way I could approach that. I really don't need you to do this. Yay. (laughs) Another question that I learned from a mentor years ago has been very powerful for me. It's 
when somebody comes and they make a suggestion, they say, well, do you want X or Y? And it's a, you know, it's a process. It's a business deliverable. So now what I do is I say, well, based upon your knowledge of what I, you know, the outcome that I'm looking for, which would you recommend? And it's opened up whole new possibilities that I don't have the expertise to have thought of. But by turning it back on them, I get a much better solution. Oh, that's nice. So now I want to zoom in particularly on the world of the irate or the upset customer, someone who's been let down or wronged or believes they've been let down or wronged. So in the heat of that stress, that tension, that battle, what are some of your pro tips for getting things in a calm, happy, healthy, resolved kind of a place? Sure. Well, the first two I'm going to suggest our listeners may again say, well, duh, but I find when you are in that heated situation, as you describe, sometimes the dust stuff disappears. Hmm. So the first two are empathy and just saying something like, man, yeah, I, I would be upset too, or I'm sorry that happened to you. That just acknowledging that this person's grievance has some right or bearing in their own mind. You don't have to really, you don't have to agree with it. You don't have to say you agree with it. You don't have to say they're right. You just are acknowledging that where they are. That diffuses a lot of their upset. And the second piece is really just listening to them as much as you can. Now, they may go on and on and they may tell you, where, you know, all way too much detail than you want to hear or need to hear. And listening to as much of that as you possibly can, what I find is if I interject when they are rambling and say so so and I use their name gently. So so Pete, let's go back to when you left Walmart and what you were doing that, you know, or something that you need, some germane piece of the story that you need clarification on before you can make be forward. So using their name if you have to interrupt them. Most people don't like being interrupted, but if you use their name and ask a germane, relevant question then they're more likely to not mind it and then refocus on what you need. So as a consumer, the other day I had an example of someone not doing the first part where I was complaining because some accounting department screwed up and really has messed me up. And when I called to ask about the resolution and I said, yeah, your accounting department just really screwed up. And she said, well, it might not have been the accounting department. Things just happen. Well, that was not empathizing at all, and it frankly wasn't helpful at all. So had she just said, oh, man, I'm sorry this happened to you. I know what a pain it is. She didn't need – you know, if she just approached it differently, I would have felt better heard, better understood, would have felt she was my advocate rather than really poo-pooing my analysis of the source of the issue. Mm. Understood. Yes. And that, that does help. And it's funny. I'm still imagining myself irate about something that happened to me at Walmart in your, in a little scenario. And <laughs> <laughs> these peanuts are stale. <laughs> I don't know what that would be, but that, that's fun right. to imagine. 
<laughs> oh man. So all right. So we have but, the empathy. But they give you way too much detail leading up to what it is that you can ha- help them with. So that's uh-huh. my channel. Gently just refocusing them, using their name, and also being very mindful of your word choice. In if someone, if you and I are having a normal conversation, and I say something about, well, you know, I'm sorry, Pete. I wish I could help you, but it's not my job. Period. Mm. Then <laughs> you would not be thrilled about that, but you wouldn't get upset. However, I say that, and you're already stressed, you're already agitated then you are going to be livid. So if indeed it isn't my job, I don't need to say that. I could say something like, I want to find a resolution for you as quickly as possible. Your particular issues outside of my responsibilities, however, I will connect you to Sally, who's the manager of that department or who handles that. Uh, I'm going to just put you on hold briefly, if that's okay. I'm going to tell Sally what your issue is, and then I'll stay on the line as I connect you. Is that okay? So there we go. So again, whether that's internal or external, just being the champion for the issue and and shepherding it to the right person, fully informing the person that you're helping along the way. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's good. So we got the empathy, we got the asking uh, questions and the use of the name. We've got a careful approach when it comes to the word choice. Could you maybe bring these to life right now? Let's imagine you and I are colleagues <laughs> and we're, we're going to get real. We'll do a role play on the spot, see how this goes. So imagine we're colleagues and I am, I'm furious at you for, let's say, oh, you created a PowerPoint document and did not update the data. There was some careless thing that you were using sort of a previous presentation and just copied it over without even updating some of the the key data. And the client saw it and he questioned how great we are at our job, if we're fools, if he should go with a competitor. And I feel very embarrassed and and mad about it. So I'm like, oh, darn it, Rebecca, you, you screwed me over big time. Ah, I'm angry. So how do you how do you talk me down? So Pete, wow, I'm so embarrassed. You are right. I thought I had updated that data. I pulled it from the last uh, deck that we had. And I, I didn't notice that there was newer data since then. And, then, and I can totally understand how embarrassing that would be in front of the client and that it made us look bad. What can I do? Can I shoot the client the new data? Can I tell them that I was the one who didn't provide it? It was had nothing to do with you. What can I do from here on to help fix this? Lovely. Okay, so, so you're asking the question and even offering a couple particular ideas uh, within there. Very good. And anything else we want to kind of capture as we, we wrap up the, the calming upset folks piece? Yeah, I think among colleagues, I would just profusely apologize and say, I promise you the next time we work together, I will triple check whatever I send to you. And please let me know when you see something that you think needs to be done better. Okay, very good. Thank you. And so when it comes to the actual generation of the solution. You've got a bit of a problem solving or solution generating approach to challenges. Could you walk us through a little bit of that process? Well, I try to identify 
what is the the core issue? What is the root problem? Because I often get approached by potential clients who say, Rebecca, I want you to do – this cracks me up. I want you to do a one-hour team building for the managers or executives of, of my organization. Okay, great. We can look at that. What, what is specifically are the issues that you want us to discuss? I want you to make them more professional. Uh. <laughs> Actually, I had this with an international sales meeting who was coming to Silicon Valley. They were bringing bringing people all over the world, and they wanted me to do, I think it was like a two-hour workshop. So what are the outcomes you would like as a result of this? Well, I want them to sell 100% more than they're doing now in a two-hour workshop. You want me to do this? So I tried to convince them of a longer-term program with uh, accountability and spread out over a year and virtual so they don't – you know, we could do it in all the time zones, et cetera. And at the end, he just wanted them to have something to stick in this two-hour slot. And I said, take them to the movies. (laughs) I did. I said that. I said, you'll get – as much value long-term toward the goal that you're trying to reach as you will from a two-hour workshop that, you know, without any follow-up and accountability, you're not going to get the outcomes that you want. Mm -hmm. So, (laughs) so, and I wasn't really trying to be a smart aleck. I was really trying to see how, help him see that what he expected he was setting everybody up for a failure. So if he did indeed bring an external person in for those two hours, there was no way they could be successful. There was no way they could produce what he wanted in that time. So part of it is looking at what are your outcomes? Is your definition of the solution really match what's plausible? And if not, then I try to work with them to get them to come up with a more realistic and successful out, uh, process to give them the outcome they want. Mm, good deal. Thank you. Okay. Well then, so tell us, is there anything else that you want to make sure we discuss or tackle before shifting gears to the fast fave segment? I thought we could touch on just a little bit because I know our Listeners are in the first phase of their careers, shall we say. You know, they're, they're not at the end phase of their careers. And when I was, I want to say 23, I started my company at age 24. And when I was 22 or 23, I heard a speaker talk about his book called Making Money Without a Job. And it influenced the next decades of my life. Now, I had jobs after that. But I was always looking at how can I make a living doing things that I love to do and make a contribution to the people around me. So I started my consulting speaking training business at age 24 and had multiple businesses concurrently during that time. And now I'm at the point in my life where I do pretty much whatever I want. I only take projects that I like. I only coach and work with people that I think are interested in making improvements and moving forward. And it allows me to work with impoverished women and children in Southeast Asia. I go twice a year. I'm on the board of a nonprofit there. And 
while I'm there, I work with the business community in Cambodia, Singapore, Thailand, wherever I am, and help them get better. And I'm able to then travel abroad, which I love as many as much as I would like. So last year it was 10 weeks in three trips and nine countries. And next year it'll be about nine weeks in six countries so far. So I just want to plant that seed that be always looking at what all you love to do and is there a way to make money doing it so you have a life you really love. Well, that is a great thought and it's ideal. It's ideal certainly in terms of getting the career lined up just right. So thank you. That's good. So now could you start us off by sharing a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? Sure. This has been a mantra of mine since my early 20s when I had a mentor named Doug Hooper who wrote a series of books. And one of the things that echoes in my mind on an ongoing basis is his quote that says, whenever something comes up in your life that will lead to your betterment, say yes to it immediately. Thank you. I like it. And how about a favorite book? I actually have two. So the one I mentioned earlier, Making Money With It A Job, and then another one that has been a more recent entrance into my library, but I, I love. It's called, it's got a funny name, but it's called Excuse Me, Your Life Is Waiting. And it's really about your awareness and perceptiveness and gratitude for everyday things. I mean, literally everyday things. So when you come to a red stoplight, being grateful for it. What are you talking about, Rebecca? I'm grateful for a red stoplight. Yeah. What What could you be grateful for about a red stoplight? Oh, this is an opportunity to just take a deep breath and and enjoy the surroundings. Or, you know, it's it was fabulous, I thought, in just increasing my awareness and gratitude toward little things throughout the day. Oh, thank you. And how about a favorite habit of yours? Every day I try to do some activity that moves me toward more revenue. Since I am an entrepreneur, have been an entrepreneur for 30 years, I am constantly saying, okay, how can I make sure that I'm making some revenue today or at least in the next two days? Okay. And so could you give us an example? Like what can you do in perhaps like a 10 minute window that uh, drives you toward that goal like every single day? Well, absolutely. So I'm revising my latest book, which is called Extraordinary Leadership Lessons from Everyday People. And I'm then I can write, you know, I don't know, 500 yeah. words in 10 minutes. I can write something that will go in that book that will lead me to have a new revision in the next month or two. All right, fun. And what would you say is, is the best way to find you if folks want to learn more about you and, and what you're doing? It's really simple. It's just my name, RebeccaMorgan.com. All right, that is simple. And do you have a favorite challenge or, or parting call to action for those seeking to be more awesome at their jobs? I would constantly be looking at what we talked about. How can I be an exemplar? How can I make other people's lives easier, better? And then the second part of that is what I talked about a few minutes ago, which is how can you build a revenue stream doing what you love? Mm. All right. Thank you. Well, Rebecca, this has been lots of fun. Thank you and good luck. Well, thanks, Pete. 
next time you screw up, you've got the script ready to go to make it happen. That's handy because we all make mistakes. And it's good to know Rebecca and company, they got your back and you are going to recuperate quickly. So once again, if you want to check out the show notes, the transcripts, the links to things mentioned, you'll find that over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash F70. And if you haven't already, please do push that subscribe button so you don't miss folks like our next guest, Angela Copeland of the Copeland Coaching Podcast, another fantastic person I met at Podcast Movement 2016. She is going to share some pro tips for navigating your career smartly, and it's so good. She's talked to so many clients, and we get to just sort of take that aggregated wisdom and, and run with it. So looking forward to that. Hope you are too. Peace. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. To get the most out of this conversation, visit awesomeatyourjob.com to find today's show notes, transcript, and infographic summary cheat sheet. For more entertaining professional skill sharpening, be sure to subscribe to catch the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job. 